Good morning, everyone. You can all grab a seat. Uh, first of all, I want to welcome you. If you're new here with us today in the theater, or if you're joining us online and you're new with us, I just want to introduce myself. My name is Andrew. I am one of uh, the leaders here at West Village Church, and this morning is my privilege to uh, be able to share God's word with you. Uh, just a couple of notes here. If you are new with us, um, you may have heard this already, but our heart's desire is to see you move from being a guest with us to being part of our family. And so uh, one of the most simple ways that you can get started on that process is by texting your name. If you're watching online to the number you see, below me if you're here in the theater to the number you see above me. Um, it's very confusing when we're doing multiple things at once. Quick shout out to those of uh, our church family who are watching scattered around the city. Uh, we believe that the church is both gathered and scattered, and so we're excited that those of you who were able to make it this morning were able to be here, and we're excited that other people are scattered in smaller gatherings around the city. We have a uh, community group out in Souk. Uh, this just has a heart to see Jesus made known in that, in that particular town. Uh, we have a group of, of youth, I think, who are doing a watch party today, um, and so we're very excited to, uh, to see what God continues to do as he spreads his church around Victoria. Um, we have been going through the book of Matthew together, uh, so we're going to be continuing on that. I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 19 today, uh, but before we get started, I do feel like I need to just take a step back for a second, uh, because the, the passage that we're going uh, through today in Matthew chapter 19 is a heavy passage, uh, and it's a passage that is probably going to prick at many of us in a lot of different uh, ways. Uh, it talks about issues of divorce and singleness and remarriage uh, and has implications even for things like uh, gender and sexuality. Um, and so uh, there are people in this room today who are probably, and people who are watching online, who are probably going to hear something that you're like, that just doesn't sit well with me. Or even, even more like, that actually deeply offends me. Um, so a couple of things I want to say in regards to that. Number one, I just want to say that um, uh, I will not have enough time to really dive into everything that is in this passage today. I was talking with Matt, uh, who was uh, doing our, our hosting time earlier. I was like, hey, is there anything I can cut from the first bit? And he's like, dude, you should have just tried to break this into two sermons. I was like, oh, this is what Chris gave me, so blame him. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, there's a lot. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go... Uh, like probably over time, so I apologize to those of you with kids. Um, I'm sorry in advance, uh, but it's just, I want to do a faithful job of what the text says. Uh, secondly, uh, I do want to say that uh, I just won't have enough time to go through everything, and so if you have questions, um, please, please, please look up uh, on our website under sermons, a sermon series that we did a couple years back that Chris preached on called In His Image. You can see a graphic for it on the screen behind me here. Um, but it is a fantastic sermon that really delves into things like sexuality, gender, even uh, relationships and marriage, and how to understand those from a deeper biblical perspective. Um, I think it's, it's very, very, very well done, and, um, and it'll be able to kind of dive a little bit deeper into some of these issues that we're going to talk about today. Um, the, the next thing I want to say is we as a church family have always tried to be a church that can be a church for anyone in any place uh, with any background. And so um, if you are here today and you're like, there's lots of things that you said that I disagree with, well, I, I want to say, great, I'm really glad that you're here and I will hope that you'll continue to, to be with us. Uh, we have, have continually tried to be a place where um, people can come with various opinions and very, uh, various views, but still become part of our family and participate in life together with us. And so I want to encourage you uh, to continue on that pattern uh, and, and know that it's okay to, to think differently. It's okay to have different views, and that doesn't mean that you can't still be family with us. Uh, the final thing, though, that I do want to say is that uh, there's a, a pastor by the name of Tim Keller, and he often uh, uses this uh, just to kind of challenge people's perceptions. He says, um, if God, if the God that uh, you believe in never disagrees with you, chances are uh, he's a God that you made up in your own head. And so I want to just challenge us with this thought that it is, it is possible that if God is who he says he is, that if he is infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, and we look at ourselves and recognize that we're broken, sinful, uh, finite. We have literally, like, if you think about the, the vastness of time and the vastness of the world, like a minutia of perspective, it's quite possible that God sees things that we don't see and God knows things that we don't know. And so with that being said, I want to encourage us just to think through that reality. Um, and, and just uh, as you do that, understand that at times, if, if God is truly God, he is going to confront us, and he's going to say things that uh, don't make sense to us because he actually knows better. Uh, that's a hard thing to hear, 
But at the same time, if it's true, then it means that there are going to be times when things don't sit well with us, and yet uh, we are invited to submit to them, not because we 100% get it, but because we 100% trust who God is. And so, uh, again, I'm not asking you to check your brains at the door, but I am asking you to consider that God might have something for you uh, that might challenge you, and he might know something that you don't. Um, So consider that as we continue through today. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to dive right in. And uh, like I said, I have a limited amount of time, so I'm going to go very, very quickly through this. Um, So it says this, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So the last few weeks, Jesus has been journeying towards Jerusalem, and he's had continually amped up confrontations with the religious establishment, the religious elite of his day and age. And so what happens next should be no surprise to us. Jesus has said, I'm going to the cross. There's going to be a confrontation. The religious establishment is going to be putting me to death. And so we're going to see how that's continually amping up towards that conclusion. So verse 3, it says that some Pharisees, one of the religious elite groups of Jesus' day, came to him to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So these religious teachers, Bible scholars, they come and they want to trick Jesus. Why do they want to trick Jesus? Why do they want to test him? Because they see this crowd of people following him and they want to undermine his influence and authority in their lives. And so what are they going to do? They're going to throw a controversial question at him, a question that is going to have some people on one side of the fence and some people on the other. And that's exactly what they do. So they pull out this question that comes from uh, a passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1 to 4, that had been hotly debated about what the implications of that passage were by the religious leaders for the everyday average person. So let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1 to 4, briefly here. And let's just read it so that we understand where the question is coming from. So it says this, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, Uh, Take note, women, this is in the Bible. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves her house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies... Then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Uh, just quickly, uh, if, if you heard that and you're like, that just seems super sexist and super unfair, uh, yeah, it totally does. It totally does. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, but here's the thing. What I didn't see in there, and I hope you notice this, is nowhere does it say, hey, I command you to go divorce people. But there was these two uh, religious scholars, if you will, philosophers, uh, who had started uh, this conversation about the implications of this passage. And they said, well, clearly it's implied that divorce is a thing. And so there's reasons given for what that divorce is in this passage. So on the uh, more conservative side of the fence was a man named Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai, who lived uh, just before Jesus, around Jesus' time, he contended that the implications of this passage were that a man was allowed to divorce his wife. And the reason was for what it says here uh, in verse 1, if he found something indecent about her. And and the way he interpreted that was to mean something sexually indecent. So, uh, you know, she uh, had slept with someone before they got married, or he found out that she was sleeping with someone while they were married, or something along those lines. But even that started to loosen up in his own camp. And so indecent had a broader and broader definition, uh, giving men and men more power in a relationship. Now, that was the more stringent side. Then you had another man named Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Hillel was considered the the one who was a little bit more loose in his interpretation that gave uh, less restriction around divorce. And Rabbi Hillel argued that if you look at this, it also says that if a man finds anything displeasing about his wife, he can divorce her. And so his interpretation was anything that a man sees in his wife that's displeasing is grounds for that man to say, see you later, hon, you're on your own. 
I mean, he literally says, if she burns the soup, you can kick her out. Now, how many wives are like, oh, that seems awesome. (laughs) Yeah, probably not not many. (laughs) And this was the dominant interpretations of Jesus' day. And so what the Pharisees are asking is, are you with Shammai or are you with Halal? And he knows, they know that no matter which way he goes, some people are going to be like, hey, no, we're Shammai guys, or hey, we're Halal guys. But Jesus, being Jesus, does what Jesus always does. He doesn't fall for the trap. Man, he digs right under it, erodes the foundations, and lets the Pharisees fall in themselves. Listen to his response. It's so, so good. Haven't you read? This is how he starts off. Just just remind us, who's he talking to? He's talking to Bible nerds. He's talking to biblical scholars. He's talking to guys who've dedicated their entire lives to memorizing and understanding the Bible. What's like the biggest insult you can give them? Oh, have you ever read your Bibles, guys? It's like someone coming up to Chris and being like, hey, Chris, I don't know if you've read this, but it says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Uh, did you miss that somewhere? And Chris is like, whoa. No, don't worry, you don't have to say that, Chris. He knows. <laughs> Jesus says to them, haven't you read? And then he, he says, at the very beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus looks at these guys and he says, guys, you've completely, completely missed the point of what marriage is. You're asking all the wrong questions. You're asking, how do we get out of this thing? He's like, you shouldn't be asking that question. You should be asking, what is this thing for? And so he, he goes back to the very beginning of the Bible. He says, let's look at what God actually meant for marriage in his creation of it. So let's just do that. He quotes two passages. One comes from Genesis chapter one and the other comes from Genesis chapter two. So Genesis chapter one, uh, whenever you hear Jesus quoting scripture, uh, it's kind of like uh, he, he grew up in a culture where people would have understood that to mean this is sort of like a hyperlink going back to a particular passage, which means for those of us who are not in that culture, we need to, anytime we hear someone read scripture, we need to go back and see what it says in that whole section because that's what Jesus is intending people to understand. So Genesis chapter one, if you're familiar with it, God creates the heavens and the earth, he creates all the creatures, he creates the sun, the moon, the stars, all the lights. Uh, And then at the pinnacle of creation, we see in verse 26, it says this, then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Now, I don't know if you got that, but there's some weird kind of uh, person shifts going on. It starts off with first person singular, God. Then God said, first person singular, let us, first person plural, make mankind in our first person plural image. So there's this weird thing going on in the text where God is both like a singular being, but also there's like this plurality And God says, what we're going to do is we're going to make humans in our image. And then he goes on to say, uh, in our image and in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God says, we're going to make humankind to be in our image, and their job is going to bring that image to the rest of the world so the rest of the world can experience what I am like. And this is the passage that Jesus quotes directly from verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created, and the NIV here says them, but the original Hebrew text actually uh, translate that as him, meaning mankind as a single entity. And then it goes on to say male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number uh, and fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So God says uh, this really interesting thing. says that I have made human beings to be in my image. And he has this mixture of like a single God, but then there's this 
plural reality to him. And what we know this to be is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God is uh, a single unit, and this is the, the foundation of like Christian Jewish belief, that God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, that's like the Shema, the first prayer that every Jewish person is supposed to wake up and, 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 and pray in the morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, Christians continually say this, that we believe that God is a single God. We're monotheistic. We believe that there's only one God, and yet within God there's this inner complexity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And we see in this God that these three persons live in this interconnected covenantal relationship of love, connected to each other, and that gets filled out over and over in Scripture. And the outcome of that community of love is what we see happening right here in the creation of the world, where God's love overflows out of himself and generates new life. And then what do we see here? Human beings are made in God's image. So what are they? Well, humankind is one, singular, and yet within humankind there's inner complexity, male and female, different. And when they're joined together in a covenant of love, the outcome is that outpouring of love leads to new life. God is saying something here about what the purpose of marriage is. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, but Andrew, I mean, we took biology. Humans aren't the only, only ones where a man and dude, a man and a woman get together and it generates life. Like, I mean, I have a, I have a pet rabbit, okay? There's other creatures that this happens with. And this is where Genesis chapter 2 comes in, the second part of what Jesus quotes. So I'll jump a little bit back from the passage that he quotes directly. At the end of verse 20, so uh, this Genesis chapter 2 is kind of like a zoom in of what's going on in Genesis chapter 1, a little bit more detail. It says this in, in verse uh, 20, so God's created uh, people. Uh, he's actually only created right now just one person, uh, Adam. And uh, so it says this, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So uh, God brings around the dogs. Hey, this could be your best friend. And I was like, that's great, but uh, I don't think that's a great lifelong partner. You know, bring around the goats. No, definitely not horses, okay? Like, we can go for a stroll, but that's not my lifelong partner. So, so God said, there's, there's no suitable partner for Adam. He's not complete. He's incomplete, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took out one of man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called women for she was taken out of man. So Adam looks and says, this is, I am complete. She's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's the one that actually makes me who I am supposed to be. And then this is the contention of the scriptures. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. What this is saying is that humans are very different from animals. It's true, animals have this biological urge to reproduce. It's like, you know, I talk to any evolutionary biologist, they'll say like survival of the species is like the biggest overarching thing. And, and many people argue that humans even have that same urge. And yet, the Bible's vision for humanity is one in which we leave our father and mother and create a new unit and become a new thing and a covenantal relationship of love that declares to the world around us a picture of what God is like. Some of us are married today and we need to know that the picture that we have of what the purpose of our marriage is is wrong. We've been treating our marriage like it's for our own self-fulfillment, our own uh, self-actualization, and Jesus wants to come to you and say, no, it's not. It's actually there so that you can declare to the world around you a picture of what I am like and how you enter into this covenant of love with another. Now, some of you think, okay, but 
I mean, that Deuteronomy passage is also in the Bible, so how do we rectify that? And that's exactly the questions that the Pharisees have. Listen to what they say in verse 7. So why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? They say, okay, but Jesus, like, there's this whole other part of the Bible you're forgetting about. Like, are you just trying to say that that's invalid? And again, Jesus, like, kind of punching the gut, says, you're asking the wrong questions. Listen to what he says here. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. He says, that isn't permission or a command to go divorce your wives. Moses had to mitigate the damage that you were doing. Let, let us just go back to that passage. What was going on? Uh, Moses is saying, okay, this is the situation that's happening. A man is displeased with his wife, so he divorces her and sends her away. And then another man just says, oh, okay, well, one man's trash is another man's treasure. I'm going to take her. And then maybe he dies, or maybe he goes back, uh, maybe he gets displeased with her, and he casts her aside. And the other man says, well, you know, okay, you know, like, it's like a toy that you get bored with, and then you go back to. And I'm sure lots of you ladies are like, this is super offensive. It is super offensive. It's supposed to be super offensive, because that's not right. That is not a good picture of what God designed marriage to be. God did not design for the human relationship to be one where one person dominated the other and treated them like property. And yet that was exactly what was going on in the culture that the Israelites were living in and had become a mainstream part of their culture. And along comes Moses and says, okay, we have to have some laws to mitigate the damage of the hardness of heart that you have and how you're treating one another. By the way, this isn't the only thing that he does this in. A lot of people are hard on, Bible, on the Bible because they say it doesn't say enough early on about slavery. Here's the thing that we need to understand about the Bible, and this is what Jesus wants us to understand here as, he, as he's kind of hammering home this point to the Pharisees. He's saying, uh, God is a God of grace, and he came into a culture rather than just wiping it out for its sin. He graciously entered into that brokenness and planted the seeds of transformation that would one day bear fruit in freedom. I just think about this for a second. Moses is addressing an issue where women are being treated like property, and yet he says you can't do that anymore. So you can't just discard someone and then take them back at whim. So you don't have that right. That person has dignity. That person needs to be treated with some respect. And this is what we see at the heart when, when Jesus goes back to the laws earlier in Matthew. Uh, he constantly says, okay, there's a, there's a heart reality that God's trying to form in you, that change to soften your heart so that you can actually live the way he created you to live. That's why he says things like, you've heard it said, don't murder. That's a mitigation of your brokenness. But here's the heart of it. God doesn't want you to even be angry with someone. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, don't cheat on your spouse. It's like, yeah, that, that's to mitigate the damage but the desire is that you wouldn't even look lustfully at someone else, that you'd be so committed to your spouse that no one else would even enter your mind. She says the, the, the goal isn't figure out what excuse you can have to divorce someone. The goal is that you would understand that your marriage relationship is to be an image of what God is like and you're asking the wrong questions. So he goes on and says this, for the creator, uh, <clears throat> for he created male and female, uh, nope, trying to jump back, <laughs> sorry. So Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. And I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, for those of you who just heard that, there's going to be a variety of questions and, 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 uh, and responses and action, reactions. Um, probably one of the, the first questions is, is, that seems pretty similar to that Rabbi Shammai position. So is Jesus saying the same thing as Rabbi Shammai? And I'll say this, I, I don't think he is. And I say, I think uh, Rabbi Shammai started from a very different position than Jesus. Uh, he, the question that Rabbi Shammai was asking is what grounds do I have to divorce my wife? 
R.T. France, who's a scholar who has done a great deal of work in the book of Matthew, says this about it, and I think it's helpful for us in understanding Jesus' point here. He says, Jesus' teaching starts rather from the one flesh command of Genesis 2.24, so that it is only because sexual unfaithfulness has already violated the unity of the one flesh that the marriage must be regarded as no longer intact. Shammai was concerned with a man's right to initiate divorce, Jesus with the formal recognition that marriage has already been broken by a wife's action and truthfully by a wife or a husband's action. And what uh, Jesus is essentially saying here is if a one flesh reality is what constitutes a marriage, if that one flesh reality is broken because someone else joins themselves in a one flesh reality outside of that, then the marriage is already functionally dead. What the marriage was supposed to be is dead. Jesus isn't there trying to say, hey, this is some reason or excuse for you to get divorced. He's just saying it's already gone. It's already dead. Saying if that's the case, then you are free to be remarried because what happened there is a death. Now, there are a variety of other questions. Or some of you who are watching online, some of you who are in this room who are like, okay, but is that the only reason that someone should not be in a marriage? Like, what about abuse? Like, if a a spouse is beating on their spouse or their kids, like, that's not good, right? Uh, What about, like, emotional abuse, verbal abuse? There's so many reasons that seem good for someone not to have to stay in a marriage. Like, are you just suggesting, Andrew, that we should stick it out? Is that what Jesus is saying here? And I'll say this, I I don't believe that that is what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't saying there's every reason that someone should be living in the same household with another person who is causing them physical or emotional uh, pain from abuse. He's not saying that. He's not saying that if you're in danger that you need to just suck it up and stick with it. Now, I want you to hear that. If that's the case, I want to encourage you that you should not be in that house, that you should be gone from there, that you need to create some space between you and that person. But there is some things that Jesus is actually saying, and there are things that we might not like. Jesus is saying if the purpose of a marriage is to reflect what God is like to the world, I think he really means this, the only way that that's broken is if that sexual union is joined with another person. Then it is truly dead. That one flesh reality is gone. And he says, if that's not the case, then you're still with that person. It doesn't mean you're living with them. It doesn't mean you're even daily interacting with them, but you are joined to them. Many of us will hear that, and that will be heavy and hard. But I I do want to just say this because I think it's important. If the purpose of marriage is ultimately to image what God is like, then let's just think for a second of what the Bible tells us that God is like with us. You know, the Bible constantly uses the metaphor that we, his church, are like the bride and Jesus is the groom, that Israel was the bride of Christ or bride of God, and yet she was faithless. She cheated on him all the time. And look at us. I mean, we do it every day. We trust in something else other than God. And yet what is his response to us? It's been faithfulness. He sticks with us. He continues to pursue us. He hopes for us. He loves us. He longs for us. So I want to say this with full realization that this is hard, heavy, that this is something that you will not be able to do in your own strength, but this is what I want to say to you. I think that if the primary goal for marriage is that it reflects what God is like, then there might be implications even in a very destructive marriage, in how you continue to faithfully hope that the person that you were joined with in a one flesh uh, reality 
will come back and you forsake others for the sake of being true to that one. I think that is a message that our world does not see very often, but it's a message that our world desperately needs to hear. One other thing I want to say, I know I'm saying a lot on this, but it's because it's so deeply personal for many people. Uh, There are some of you who have been married before, uh, and you are now married again. The question you might be asking is like, well, okay, what does this mean for me? Am I supposed to like divorce my wife and try and go back to my husband? I don't really think that that is what this passage is saying. I think what the invitation for you now is that you understand that your marriage is now to be a reflection of what God is like, that you move forward in submission to him, recognizing again that there are probably some aspects of of your first relationship, and there will be aspects of this relationship, but Uh, where that wasn't the case. And yet you have been given this beautiful, beautiful chance for Jesus to make something new. The final thing I want to say before I move on is that even, even, even if your relationship is broken because of some sexual infidelity, and even though Jesus clearly says here that that means your relationship is dead, and I mean that, that doesn't just mean like physical. I mean, just right, he said, if you even look at a woman lustfully, there are guys who are uh, functionally have killed their relationship or, or ladies because they've been looking at pornography. And even if that is the case, who do we worship? We worship Jesus. What did Jesus do? Did he stay dead? No, he rose from the grave. What does that mean? It means that he is the God of the resurrection. So it means that even if your marriage is dead, it is not beyond Jesus' means to resurrect. How do I know this is true? Because I have seen it. I have dear friends for 10 years, a decade, the husband cheated on his wife behind her back. They were Christians. They served in churches together. And yet he had killed their relationship and she finally found out and their relationship was dead. She left And yet, that moment of brokenness, that moment of death, was a place that God brought them to, to work on their hearts, to transform them, and they came back together. Afterwards, they they had a child before. Afterwards, they had another daughter, and they gave her this name as a monument to the fact that Jesus had resurrected what was dead in their marriage relationship. So church family, I want to say, even if this is your story, it doesn't mean you need to give up. It doesn't mean that God cannot change it. It it means that, yes, it is dead, and and if you get remarried, that you are, uh, you know, you're, you're okay to do that, but it also doesn't mean that that's necessarily the path that God's going to call you on. If you've heard all of this, um, and, and you don't think that maybe you should have second thoughts about marriage, then um, you might not get what Jesus is saying here. Because he's saying marriage is super, super, super hard. That's super, super, super costly. And the disciples, man, They've grown up in this culture where, I mean, the two opinions are like Shammai and Hillel. So it's like, I can divorce her for this reason or I can divorce her for any reason. But either way, I have the power. And I mean, we live in a culture where the, the dominant narrative on marriage is like, you know, if it stops working, if we have irreconcilable differences, if, uh, you know, if someone uh, doesn't really do what I want them to do, we can be out, we can be done. You know, let's go our separate ways. We can both be happy. And we, we feel comfortable in that. We have an out. If it doesn't work out for us, we can just leave. And the disciples, they're listening to what Jesus says, and, and look at how they respond. He says, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, man, it's better not to get married at all. Like, guys, this is crazy. Jesus, do you know what you just told us? Like, we have no control and no power. We can't get out if it's hard. It's probably better that we never get married at all. 
And again, Jesus wants to both uh, kind of address what they're saying. And so this is what he says. He, he actually kind of goes along with this, this thought. He says, uh, yeah, sure. Probably some people shouldn't get married. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it's been given. So he says, yeah, there, there are some people who shouldn't get married. But let's be honest, there's lots of people who that's not going to be their story. Only those who God's called to. Now, there's a couple of things as, before we move on that we just need to know. Because I think uh, in our culture, we have this idealized view of the single person. Uh, we have kind of this, actually kind of two contrary views of, the sing, of, of singleness. But we have this ideal view of the single life. I mean, uh, I know frequently I remember back to my single days when I lived in this great bachelor pad with other dudes and I had this massive bedroom where I could put up my posters of Lord of the Rings and rock bands that I liked and I could go and buy swords and I could just buy guitars whenever I wanted and I could live like a slob and eat whatever I wanted and go out and drink beer with my friends. And uh, then I got married and I had to get rid of my posters, and Shannon's constantly telling me that my CD tower has got to be put under the house, and it sucks sometimes. <laughs> See, in our culture, there's actually this uh, idea that like the single life is like the good life, because you don't have any responsibility, and you don't have any freedom. There's no one who has a call upon it, and I, I, what I want you to hear is that if that is your reason for not getting married, Jesus wants to confront that and say, number one, that's not a good reason to not get married. If you're just trying to protect your own selfish interests, your own freedoms, that's not a good reason not to be married. You're called to something higher. You're called to declare to the world around you what I am like. And the way that you can do that is through marriage. And so there's some people who just need kind of a kick in the butt today. You need to lay down your life and learn how to submit yourself to another person to join yourself in a self-given community of love. Stop making excuses. But there are also other people who need to hear something very different from that. And this is the people that Jesus wants to address. So he says, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. And then he uses this term eunuch. I'm going to do, for, uh, for those of you with kids, I apologize. This is going to be a little graphic, but uh, I need to explain what a eunuch is. Some of you might not know. For those of you online, uh, you can just Wikipedia, and I'm sure it'll be fun. Um, but a eunuch, uh, kind of traditional sense, uh, when you live in a patriarchal society, as we've kind of shown men kind of accumulate women, like uh, you know, kind of Harvey Weinstein, right? Like they kind of co co like collect women like property, treat them like property. It's horrible. It's not good. And yet they wanted to protect their family line. So they didn't want other guys kind of getting in with their ladies. And so the people that they would get to serve their ladies were often slaves that they then castrated so that those guys could not impregnate women and, and uh, potentially mess up the, the family line. That's what a eunuch is. Uh, but Jesus is going to use this term in, in an even wider sense to describe anyone who cannot procreate. You see, in Jesus' day, uh, marriage was so, uh, was, it was inconceivable that marriage would not also be joined with procreation. In fact, uh, the same religious gurus who were talking about, you know, whether it was like, you know, a man displeases his wife or, uh, a, you know, a, a man's displeased with his wife or a man just thinks that she's done something um, like not good and he just sends her away, uh, those guys would look back at Genesis where it says be fruitful, multiply, and they actually say it's a man's duty. It's a duty to multiply and fill the earth. It's a biblical command. If you're not doing it, you're not really doing what God's called you to do. And so single people were anathema. They were like uh, off to the edges of society in Jesus' day. And he says something so profoundly interesting in this moment. So he says, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. So there are people who physiologically cannot reproduce. They're not going to be marriage material, at least in that era. And I think that's not always true today. Uh, lots of people can have a healthy, fruitful marriage where they demonstrate and declare what God's like in that marriage and not have kids. Uh, I do think there is lots to be said about having kids, but I'll leave that for a different conversation. But he recognized that there are people who are born who are not going to fit into this 
picture of a diverse, so a heterosexual, like male, female, joined together in a lifelong covenantal relationship of love. And I think, and I want to be careful and cautious about how I say this, but I think this has implications not just for people with physiological uh, issues that make them not able to enter into this, but also with uh, psychological or or, uh, mental issues or orientation issues. That God's saying here that not everyone is being called into marriage, and he's he's not saying that that's going to be super easy. He's not going to be saying that that's going to be always uh, like a joy. But he's saying that that's a reality. He says, there are some who are born that way and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. So just kind of the classic understanding of eunuch. Uh, But then he says this at the end, and this is what is so profound in his culture. He says, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So he says, some people, for physiological reasons or because it's been forced on them, are not going to be able to be uh, eunuchs. He says, there there are some people, and they're just going to say, yeah, we feel like God's calling us not to be married. And if that is the case for you, know that you're in good company because Jesus isn't just talking abstractly about this. He is that person. Jesus never got married. He never had kids. He chose to forgo those things for the sake of the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is doing here, as I said, is so radical. He's saying, even if you're single and you can't image God, particularly in a marriage relationship, it doesn't mean that you can't image God at all. He's saying you can equally image God by the way that you submit yourself to serving him. Uh, Jesus is saying, you have been given a gift as a single person that you have, and, and Paul will fill this out in, a, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I don't have time to go in it, but you can look at that. But he's essentially saying, you have some freedom. And, and so uh, encouragement for you is if you are in a state right now where you are single, uh, Jesus' invitation for you is to use that for his glory and for his kingdom, that you have actually an asset to what he wants to do in and through his people. Now, I also do want to recognize that for some of you, hearing this is, is, is hard. Hearing this is not fun. And hearing this is probably even painful. Maybe you're single and you don't really particularly want to be single. Or you've been single, but you're part of a church like ours. You're part of our church. And every week you come, and here's Andrew, and he has kids, and he has a wife, and he talks about them. And there's Chris, and he has kids come out the wazoo and a wife, and he talks about them all the time. And Matt has kids, and Ken has kids, and Michelle has kids, and Brianna has kids, and Dave has kids. And all they ever talk about is like life with family and kids, and you're like, what about me? Or you're part of a community group, and you're the odd person out who's a single. And I, I first of all, want to just say, um, the vision that God gives for singleness in the Bible is revolutionary in his day, and it's also revolutionary in our day. And we as a church have not always done a good job of helping our family understand that and equipping our family for that. And for that, I do want to apologize. And I want to invite you, if this is your story, to please, please, please come alongside us as leaders and help us understand how we can do a better job of that with you. Maybe you're single because of a divorce. Maybe you're single Uh, because you haven't found someone. Maybe you're just single because you don't feel called to be married, whatever it is. Uh, We want to do a better job of helping you understand just how important your role is in our church family and being able to speak to you better. The second thing I want to say is I recognize that I am not single at this time in my life. Um, And you may be thinking, Andrew, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what I go through. And I will fully admit that that is true. I don't. But I want you to understand that you also don't know what it's like to be married. And you may be thinking, oh, yeah, it's, it's great. You have a lifelong partner. But it's not always great. In fact, you can talk to some of the families in this room and they'll tell you it's downright horrible sometimes. I just want to share with you as we're nearing the end here, 
some words from the Apostle Paul, again from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because he actually addresses this. He says, are you pledged to him? So he's, he's talking to the church and he's saying, hey, um, being single is okay, it's great, God's gonna use you. He's saying, being married is great too, but you're gonna have all these, he calls them worldly interests. You're gonna have to care for your spouse and your kids. <laughs> um, so he says, are you pledged to a woman? Great, do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Great, you do not have to look for a wife, but if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Paul says, there is great hardship with becoming married. And I actually want to spare you that hardship. Many scholars actually believe that you know, Paul being an average Jewish guy, again, dominant cultural view is like you're supposed to get married, that he would have inevitably had a wife. And yet, they think he's actually writing here from the very painful experience of his own shattered marriage. When he came to follow Jesus, perhaps his wife walked away and said, no, I'm not having anything to do with you. Or she still stayed with him, but didn't share the most important aspects of his life. And I want to say to you, if you're single, there are pains that God may want to preserve you from. You will never know the pain of having a spouse who knows you so intimately and cuts you so deeply. They know exactly how to hurt you in a way that no one else can you will never know the agony that many families, including families in our church, experience when one spouse is following Jesus and the other is not. And the most intimate part, the thing that dictates you is compromise because the person that you are joined with in a one flesh reality is not going to follow with you. And you're constantly living a life of torn tension. You will never know the pain of loss that parents go through when they bury their own kids. And you will never know the eternally feel, feeling of agony. I mean, it's not an eternal feeling, but the, the, the feeling of angst and agony when you watch your spouse or your kids walk away from Jesus and you have to wonder, will they be joined with me in eternity? There are loneliness and pain that you will not experience. And I don't want, that to hear, I don't want you to hear them say, Andrew, uh, you, you don't care about my pain. I do. I know it's real. But I want you to understand that it is not the only pain that there is. And that it is actually possible that God in his grace is giving you the lesser pain and also the greater opportunity to serve him. So Jesus comes to a culture that has a skewed definition of what marriage is. Marriage is either the be-all and end-all, but it's also the flippant thing that's controlled by men. And Jesus confronts both of those opinions and he says, actually, if you're married, your job is to be an image bearer of what God is like. But also, if you're single, your job is still to be an image bearer of what God is like. And Jesus looks at us and says, this is what you're called to do. And I hope if you are like me, you're looking at your own life, whether you're single or you're married, and you're saying, I am really bad at this. I mean, if you came to my house and just, you know, were a fly on the wall, you would be like, Andrew, you talk a good talk, but I've seen the way that you do things. You don't always love your wife sacrificially. You don't always lay your life down for her. Your community of love is broken. If you're a single person, say, hey, you oftentimes just stray into the selfish realm. You're not pouring your life out as an image bearer of Jesus for the work of his kingdom. You say that you want to do that, but let's be honest, you spend five minutes with Jesus once a week and, you know, five hours on Facebook and 25 hours on Netflix. Here's the reality, and this is what we need to understand. This is why Jesus came and went to the cross, because we were God's faithless spouse, and yet God was our faithful husband. When we cheated on him time and time again, he pursued us, and he 
came into the brokenness of our lives and softened our hard hearts so that we could become like him. And only, only when we get that, only when we allow his love and grace to bring us into his covenantal community of love do we become transformed. Only when we understand the way that Jesus has served us can you lay down your life and serve your spouse. Only when you understand that Jesus is the only spouse that can fulfill you will you stop trying to find that perfect person and be able to fully respond in serving him. And so church, that is our invitation today. That is our invitation. I want to close by inviting us to take communion together. I think I have my cup somewhere. I know I grabbed one. Oh, here we go. <laughs> um, we have these little communion cups, and if you're joining us at home, um, feel free to grab these. Jesus' invitation is into a relationship with him, and only through that relationship will we actually be able to do what we're called to do, to be image bearers in the world around us. But church, when we do that, this is a message that our world needs to see. Many marriages actually incorporate communion into that because it has almost a uniting ceremonial feel to it that reminds us that we were being brought into something. Uh, The way it started was Jesus at the very last supper that he had with his disciples before he went to the cross uh, was celebrating Passover and they they passed around the bread for him to eat and he took this bread. If you have your little cups, take that first little plastic bit off. Take the tasteless wafer from it. And he said, this is a picture of my body, a declaration to the extents that I will go to as your faithful husband who will not let you go no matter how many times you try and leave me. Whenever you take it, do it in remembrance of me. So let us take it together in remembrance of Jesus. Following the meal, The disciples passed around a cup of wine. And when it came to Jesus, Jesus held it up to them. He said, this is a picture of my blood. It represents a new covenant. So the marriage relationship with God and humanity was broken. But church, you're invited into a new marriage relationship, a resurrected marriage relationship. She said, whenever you come together, drink this in remembrance of me. Father, we come before you as a church of broken people who have come from broken relationships, people who have desires other than what you have called us to, people who constantly are looking for excuses on how we can get out rather than learning to submit ourselves to to you so that our marriages and our single lives can be a declaration to a world that needs it so badly of what you are like. And yet, Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you're not done with us. Thank you that you continue to transform us and make us like you. So just help us to rest in that reality, knowing that you can do what we cannot.